right. Hey, welcome. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you guys here. I want to correct something that Pastor Gabe said really quick. Um, the thing about three minutes not being enough time, I would submit that there's a significant portion of you out there that three minutes is way more than enough time. Three seconds might be about like, hey, I see you there. Might be all you need. If that's you, that's okay. That's where I was. Actually, before I became a pastor, that's where I was. As soon as that greeting time happened, I'm making a beeline for the coffee, for the restroom, for whatever it is. But it's important to be a part of of something bigger than you and a body. And you get to do that by meeting other people. That's why we build that in. I know it can be uncomfortable, but um, we're all about discomfort, right? We're not all about that. We're a little bit about that. But being in your comfort zone should not be what being a follower of Jesus Christ is about, right? Can I get an agreement there? Being in your comfort zone, nothing really great ever happens in your comfort zone. It's when you push yourself, when you get out there, when you put yourself in a situation where it's Holy Spirit show up or this isn't happening. That's where the great things can happen. And every day when I stand in front of you and I get to teach a message, I say that very same thing. Holy Spirit, show up or nothing happens. And he always shows up because he's faithful like that. So I'm excited to get into this message. We're in, we're in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're new here or haven't been here in a while, we're teaching our way through the book of Mark. Mark is one of the four Gospels, and it teaches all the Gospels, each one of them. If you've ever wondered why there's four, they teach the story of Jesus from a different perspective. That's really why there are four different Gospels. We're in the Gospel of Mark, which is called Jesus the Servant Messiah. That's what we call it. And it emphasizes the ministry of Jesus, the servanthood of Jesus. If you want to read about the Messiahship, the kingship, and the royal lineage of Jesus, read the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew goes in depth into that, but Mark is all about the servanthood, and that's really, that's what we can take for our marching orders here on earth. Here's how Jesus did it. Here's the example that he gave us, and this is why then we march out in those orders. So that's where we are. Now, I want to get into it. If you've missed any of our previous, if you're out there online uh, here in-house and you've missed any of our series and you want to go back and catch them, the easiest way is to go to our website and you can catch them right through there. All the archives are in there. Uh, you can also catch them on YouTube if you want to do that. Um, so let's get into it, though. We are in, again, Gospel of Mark. We're in Chapter 7. In fact, we're finishing up Chapter 7 today. Um, next week, we'll be into Chapter 8, and Pastor Craig gets to kick us off into, past, into Chapter 8 next week. So look forward to that. Um, where we are, though, in, in the space kind of here, Um, Jesus and his disciples, again, traveling around the Galilee, okay? That's the Sea of Galilee, traveling around that region, teaching, doing all kinds of ministry, healing people, driving out demons, all these things that the people in that region have never seen before. Even his disciples were pretty new to it. They're, They're watching him do each one of these things, and each time he does it, they're just amazed, and they're following him around. So he's traveling around doing ministry. He goes to the area of Bethsaida, which is where... The, the fishes and loaves are multiplied to feed the 5,000. So this is all happening, and his disciples are, are a part of that. They're a part of helping to hand out the food, and they're seeing it happen, and, and you got to imagine, it's just blowing their minds. They've never seen anything like this before. And they're being a part of it right then. Then Jesus does something interesting. He says, why don't you guys get back in the boat when it's all over and head over to the other side of the lake, and I'll catch you later. They get in the boat and they head across, and if you remember our message about halfway across, they're struggling against the winds, and here comes Jesus walking on water, coming up by him, waving as he goes by. I love that section there. I just feel like Jesus was probably laughing, like, you guys, you don't realize that you can try harder and try harder, but you're not getting anywhere without me. He gets in the boat, and they make it to the other side. When they make it to the other side, they're in this area um, they're in this area called Gennesaret, and, and Jesus gets out and immediately starts doing ministry. Now the disciples are tired. The disciples go off to the side as Jesus is, again, healing and driving out demons, doing all these things. They're off to the side. They're just trying to re- relax, recover, and eat a meal together. 
But in the midst of all this healing that's going on, the miraculous, Jesus is doing that over here. The disciples are over there eating, and the Pharisees in the crowd, they don't focus on what Jesus is doing. They're like, okay, all this healing, okay, that's all great. But why are these guys not washing their hands before they eat? That's what they're focused on. In the midst of all this amazing stuff, they're focused on why didn't they wash their hands? <laughs> Mark 7, 2 is what says that. By the way, I use the New American Standard, N-A-S-B. That's the Bible that I teach out of. If you have your Bible, bring it. You can open it up. doesn't matter the translation. If you didn't bring one, don't worry about it because I'll read you all these scriptures. But you might want to make a note of some of them if you want to catch up later on them. Mark 7, 2, though, the Pharisees, again, saw some of his disciples were eating bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed. Remember how we talked about the process of ceremonially washing your hands to make them holy? Jesus responds back to them with a teaching, an amazing teaching, about what can and cannot defile a person. Remember, the word defile means to make it unsuitable for its intended purpose. In this case, the people of God render themselves unsuitable when they say things, when they allow things to come out of their heart. Jesus teaches in Matthew 15, 8, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and those things defile the person. So by that, he's declaring that all foods are clean. He's saying all that stuff about what foods you can and cannot eat, forget about that. It's what's in your heart. What's in your heart, and most importantly, what comes out of your mouth that can defile you? So he teaches them that. Then after that short teaching, he explains it to the disciples a little bit more in depth. He decides, okay, our time here in Genesaret in the Galilee region is kind of at an end for now. We're going to head somewhere else. So this week, we're in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37, if you want to study that later on your own. That's where we are. If you look in your Bible, it may be subtitled, um, The Syrophoenician Woman. There's a reason for that. If your Bible has that in there, if it doesn't, it's fine. It's not scripture. It's just a subtitle. But I'll explain that to you and why that's important here in just a minute. So Jesus and his disciples, they leave the Galilee and they head northwest to the coast of Syria. So Mark 7.24 starts out here. Now Jesus got up and went from there to the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it, and yet he could not escape notice. So when he went there, he and his disciples went straight into a house. There's a reason for that. Again, I'll explain it later, but part of it could have just been We've been traveling. It's a long walk. We want a little peace and quiet, so let's go straight into a house and rest a little bit. I'm sure the disciples didn't give them a hard time. Like, no, we don't want to rest. We want to get right to ministry. They probably wanted to rest. But let me show you a map of this region, just so you can kind of get your mind around what's going on. This right here, Sea of Galilee. Okay, so all Jesus' ministry is centered around here. Bethsaida, where he fed the 5,000, is here. Capernaum, home base and Genesaret, which is where he was. Now, they leave there, all within this Galilee region, and they head northwest all the way up to Tyre, if you see that up there. Tyre is smack in the middle of Syria. He's, we're not in Kansas anymore. He has left the Galilee into another country, and he's up there at Tyre. Now, Tyre and Sidon, which is up the coast right above it, very, very prosperous towns, cities, they're bustling cities, port cities. Um, also, all kinds of scripture that talks about their history. We won't get into that part today. But that's where he goes. He's up into that region of, of Tyre. That's a long way. That's about 35 or 40 miles, and you're walking. So that's like a little bit farther than from here to Boulder. That's quite a walk and way outside of his normal range around the Galilee. And more importantly, he's leaving an area of, of Jews and he's heading up to a region that's all Gentiles. It's interesting that he does that. So they go all the way up there. Now remember, the last thing Jesus did really before he left the Galilee region was to declare all foods clean. Here we see where the very first thing he does is illustrate to his disciples who are following him around that it's not only 
foods that are declared clean. Here he actually declares, when he goes in there and it says he goes straight into a home, that would have been something that a rabbi would never do. A rabbi would never go into the house of a Gentile. It's very much a Gentile region. Gentile just means you're not a Jew. That immediately would have been enough to set off red flags. Like, look, we can't stay there. But he didn't even skip a beat. He just goes straight into that home. Again, showing that, look, these Gentiles are not unclean just as the food. He's continuing that theme. But here's what's interesting. I, I think there are a lot of theories about why Jesus goes up to that region so soon. Nothing is ever by accident. And really, nothing that we see in Scripture is ever just for one reason. There's always multi-layers of different things that God is accomplishing through the things that happen. Same is true today. We see things through our just one mindset, our, our myopic vision of what's happening, and go, how does this affect me? God is working things in, in layers and, and levels that we could never hope to understand. But I think also, though, when he goes up in that region, one of the biggest theories is that here in this pagan territory, Jesus would kind of escape because remember the, the Pharisees were getting angry. They'd had enough of him. They were plotting against him. Herod was starting to hear rumors, King Herod, and he was starting to get on Herod's radar. Not really a good thing, not where you want to be. And then the, the multitudes, hordes of people following him all over made it kind of hard for him to do ministry. And so some say that he went up there just to kind of escape that a little bit and, and relax and recover. But here's what happens when he gets there, Mark 7:25. But after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. So he arrives in this pagan territory. And this woman who is a pagan, we, we know that because she's called the Syrophoenician woman. More on that in a minute. Um, she knew who he was and knew that she had to bring the case of her daughter to Jesus. So she comes, her daughter has an unclean spirit, and the mom comes on behalf of the daughter and immediately falls at Jesus' feet. There's a parallel account of this going on in Mark, uh, in Matthew, Matthew 15. So read that chapter if you want to know more about it. But Matthew 15, 21, 22 expands on that thought a little bit and, sa- and specifies, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So this woman a a pagan woman from a pagan region comes out and recognizes Jesus is Lord, is son of David, and addresses him like that. And it's just begging for mercy. Now, keep in mind, it says she's a Canaanite woman. That's important. Mark 7, 26 goes on. Now the woman was a Gentile, okay, a broader category of Syrophoenician descent. That's important. And she repeatedly asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So this wasn't just a, Lord, heal my daughter, and he does it. She was repeatedly asking over and over. And we don't know exactly how that worked, but he was not paying attention to her. So she was repeatedly asking, being a little bit irritating, as we'll see here in a second. But it says she was a Gentile Syrophoenician descent. Let's talk about that. So she was a Greek. The the disciples would have called her a Greek. They would have lumped her into this category. Anyone who wasn't an Israelite was lumped into this category of Greeks. So they would have called her that. But more specifically, Syrophoenician by race. What that tells us is that she was a descendant from the seven nations of Canaan which had been driven out by God's command. Now, if you want to check this on your own, Deuteronomy 7 talks about that. I'm going to read verse 1 to you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to take possession of it, and he drives away many nations from before you, the Hittites, Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. 
that's the promise all the way back that when the Jews arrived, they would have a promised land. They're being told, when you get there, there's going to be more mighty nations there, but we're going to drive them out. What this all means, though, is that this woman is a heathen descended from a long line of heathens, and even more importantly, maybe, historic enemies of Israel. She was descended from that line, and here she is begging him for mercy, begging him to deliver her daughter. Mark 7, 27, and he was saying to her, listen to this carefully. A lot of you have probably heard this before. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I have an image here. Um, This is just a 17th century painting of what this scene might have looked like. See the woman down below? She's begging Jesus for mercy. Mercy's kind of, Jesus kind of dismissive. He's got his hand out, and he's not even looking at her. He's like, "Not, not now. Don't bother me. Doesn't that seem un Jesus like? Anybody ever thought about that? It sounds harsh. Even in that painting, it's just a painting, but it paints a picture of he's kind of dismissive. He's not listening to her. It seems really harsh. Here's why it's important to study things like this because scriptures like that, taken in isolation, can be used as as weapons of the enemy to sow doubt for non-believers to look and say, "Why, why would I follow a God like that? This Jesus that you say is so merciful and so great, look at him, this woman, poor woman, begging on behalf of her demon-possessed daughter. She's begging and begging, and he's like, not now. And in fact, you'd look at it and go, he's calling, he's calling the little girl a dog. Like, that's not Jesus-like. This is why we need to study and we need to understand Scripture, because anytime something doesn't look like it makes sense, it probably doesn't. Look at it deeper. There's a deeper meaning. That's what we're doing here today. When we're faced with questions like that, our answer, church, needs to be more than just, huh, weird, right? And then move on. That's not enough. So let's look at it a little bit closer. First of all, when you look at a statement like that, like much of Scripture, is metaphorical. Not all of it. It's important to know the difference between what's literal and what's a metaphor. In this section right here, a lot of it's metaphor. So children, bread, dogs, all kinds of pictures and images, they are metaphors. Here's what for. Children, when it says children, as in children's bread, children are the Israelites, okay? The, the, the sons of God, the descendants of Abraham. That's who Jesus is talking about. So when he says children as in the children's bread, that's who he's talking about. Bread then, of course, is the bread of life. The gospel of Jesus is in John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. That's that bread that he's talking about. And then dogs. This one's important to understand. Dogs Dogs was a, was a catch-all term that, that, it's a derogatory term that you would use for just about anybody. Back and forth, Israelites would use it for anybody who, who was a Gentile. They would throw out that term, dogs, heathens in general. But it's important to understand, we take that step a little further, the word dogs. This helps us to wrap our minds around what's really going on here. It's a translational issue. So that word dogs... In English, for us, it just reads dogs, like everything else. And it's found throughout all of Scripture. But it's translated from the Greek. And the Greek word dogs that Jesus uses here is used only one time in all of the New Testament. Only one time. The word dogs is used a hundred times. But only in this one time is this one specific translation of the word dogs. So follow me along. Here, the word dogs that Jesus uses is, is kunarion in the Greek. And it means a little puppy. It's an affectionate term for a little dog or a domestic house pet. That's how Jesus uses it. 
And it's important that we don't confuse that with the way dogs is used all throughout the rest of New Testament Scripture, which is kuon, the word dogs in Greek, kuon, and, and the definition is literally a scavenging, feral dog. Okay, it's that dog that's despised. It's figuratively used as like a spiritual predator feeding off of others. It's not a compliment. It's not anything warm. Philippians 3.2 uses it in that manner. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That's how it's used 99.9% of the time. This one time, though, Jesus is calling her. It's an affectionate term. Little little domestic house pet. Jesus is not calling her a ravenous, unclean hound. Then there's another word that we need to see. Put Mark 7.27 back up there if you could. Mark 7.27. This one little word that's easy when you're reading this, let the children be satisfied first for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's easy to overlook that one little word right there, first. Let the children be satisfied First, let the children of Israel eat the bread of life first. So he's not saying it will never happen. The Gentiles would taste the bread of life soon enough, but it wasn't time yet. Now, Jesus makes it clear in all kinds of scripture that the Gentiles will eventually be a part of the flock. That was going to happen. John 10, 16 Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. He's alluding, it's going to happen. We will all be together. Paul, much later, Paul states kind of this idea of the timeline a little bit more clearly. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Remember, Greek, catch-all term for all Gentiles at this point. So he's saying, Jew first, then everyone else. The hints were there. The, the breadcrumbs were there for them to follow. Okay, so if we take that and we know, okay, the dogs will eventually eat. But still, why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus even go down that road and, and even start attempting to deny that happening. Well, it goes all the way back to the fact that Jesus Christ was sent to fulfill God's covenant promise, the very one that he made to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curses you, I will curse. And in, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. And Jesus Christ came to fulfill that. Now, the fulfillment of that covenant really starts with the regathering of the sheep that have been scattered. We see this idea of, of sheep all throughout Scripture, God's people being called sheep, not in a bad way like we see it today. Psalm 103 says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and we not ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we are are God's sheep. But God then goes on to promise through the prophet Ezekiel that he himself will be the one to regather those lost sheep. Let me read this to you. Ezekiel 34, 11 through 13. Hundreds of years before Jesus. Prophet Ezekiel says this, For the Lord God says this, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them, as a shepherd cares for his flock on a day when he is coming among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams, and in all the inhabited places of the land. See, from the very beginning, the mission of Jesus Christ was first and foremost to offer the gospel to 
the scattered sheep, the nation of Israel, and thereby call them back home to the pasture set aside for them, then they were to then in turn be the vessel of the blessing delivered to the Gentiles. That was a plan from the beginning. We see a hint every now and then when Jesus, remember when Jesus commissioned the 12, gave them the limited commission, say, okay, all these things you've seen me do, I want you to go out and do them. Remember when he said that? Just the 12 gave them this commission to do that. Matthew 10, 5 and 6 described it. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, do not go on a road to Gentiles and do not enter a city of Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, that was, a, that was a picture, kind of a foretelling of what was happening here. Now, in Matthew's account of the very same story, Matthew 15, 24, this detail gets added. But he answered, Jesus answered, and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's been his mission from the beginning. First, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that's why... That's why he responds that way to the woman. It wasn't his primary mission, but his, his compassion and his mercy wouldn't allow him just to ignore it. Plus, he's teaching the disciples a little something here. Mark seven twenty eight. So he answers her, but she answered and said to him in, in response to what he said, but she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. That was... That was not only a a metaphor, what she said, but it was actually culturally normal. That's what happened. They didn't have PetSmart back then. So if you had a domestic dog or a pet at home, the way that they ate was they would take the scraps from your table. Whatever didn't get eaten, newsflash for you, kids back then were the same as kids now, and they didn't eat all their dinner. So it was very common that the child's plate, whatever was left, would go to the dogs. It was a picture that they were all familiar with what's happening here. But the cool thing is, is this woman knew. Now, again, she wasn't a Jew. She didn't know all the scripture and all the history. She just knew. She knew in her heart that the slightest scrap from Jesus, even the leftovers, would be enough to heal her daughter. I love that. Mark 7, 29. And he responds back to her. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. All right. That's another plot twist for the disciples who have seen Jesus heal and deliver and do all these things in certain ways. But this is the first time he's ever delivered somebody without ever meeting them. He didn't meet this girl. He didn't go there. He didn't set up candles and say a prayer and have a big ceremony. He just said, Go, it's done. The disciples were like, okay, here's, here's another way. Again and again and again, Jesus is trying to illustrate like, look, you can't put a formula around how I do things. Just because you've seen it that way once doesn't mean that's how it works all the time. The important thing to take away from that, though, is the word of God never fails to accomplish its purpose. Mark 7.30, after going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Just a word. Just, a, just kind of a, a, not even a forceful word, just a go, it's done. I love that. Now, let's think about this scene here. The disciples may have, if They're human, like we're human. And if you've been witnessing all these things, you may have started to think, like I think they did, and started to think that this ministry of Jesus, this salvation that he's offering, this new life that he's offering, was for the Jews only and would not be offered to the Gentiles. And it would be hard to blame them. That's what what eons of of Scripture had said, offered to the Jews. But the problem is they were going to be sent out very shortly to minister to the Gentiles. Jesus couldn't allow their hearts to start getting hardened toward the Gentiles. And I think he uses this situation to teach them about that. Now, 
this was the first time that he had healed a Gentile in this manner or delivered the girl. Wasn't the first time it ever happened, though, because all the way back, we were all the way back with the demon-possessed man that had the legion in him. And Jesus drives out the legion into the pigs, and the pigs all go over the cliff. That man was a Gentile as well. But you could argue, and maybe even the disciples would have been thinking, that really wasn't so much about healing that man. It was about shutting up the ruckus that was going on, the commotion, the screaming, and all the stuff that this guy did. How can we do ministry if that guy's screaming? Okay, Jesus delivered him of the demons, and the pigs ran over, all that stuff. Okay, so that wasn't really so much maybe about the guy. More of a de-escalation in that. And the disciples' attitude towards Gentiles could have started then, thinking that they're more of an irritant. We see that, though. It's not just a guess. Matthew's account takes it a step further than, than Mark does. Matthew 15, 23, this is Jesus interacting with the woman, and it lines up with that painting, but he did not answer her with even a word. And his disciples came up and urged him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Now, if you're Jesus sitting there, you're like, the time, the t- it's not time now. I know what you need, but it's not time now. And he's trying to minister and teach or whatever it is that he's doing. And then the disciples come up and say, yeah. You're bothering us. Go away. You're annoying. Jesus had to say, this is, I need to teach a lesson to my disciples here because they're getting the wrong idea about what's happening. See, I think the healing of this woman's daughter was done as much for the benefit of the small, of the, of the disciples as it was for the small child and her mother. Jesus couldn't allow them to start hardening their hearts. So that's the end of that interaction. Now there's another one, and this is, an, this is subject of a lot of study too, so I'll try and make sense of it for you here. Jesus leaves that region, and he heads back to the Galilee, but he doesn't go straight there. Should throw that map up there again. He takes the long way around. Mark 7.31 says, And he left the region of Tyre and came through Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. So here again, Galilee down here, Tyre's there. Now, if you're going to head back to the Galilee, you're not going through Sidon. You've already gone a long way. But it says he went through the region of Sidon, then circled around and came down all the way down here. This is the Decapolis. The Decapolis is is a collection, basically, of 10 cities, the word Deca, Ten cities that were Greek cities, they weren't Hebrew cities, Greek cities that were pretty, pretty major cities. So this whole region of the Decapolis was in general a Gentile area. There were some Jews that lived there, but he took the long way around to get there. Why did he do that? That's kind of interesting. Matthew's account, by the way, doesn't use the term Decapolis if you're reading Matthew's account because Matthew's audience wouldn't care about that. He was talking to Jews, Matthew was. Mark's account is geared more towards the Gentiles, and so they would have said, okay, Decapolis, we know what that is, and we know why. Now, there's no biblical reason given for why Jesus takes that long route around, but I think there's a lot of practical reasons. Number one, if he were to be, if he were to head straight back, the very route that he took from the Galilee up to Tyre and up in that region, Probably the Pharisees or Herod's guards or at the very least adoring crowds would have been waiting for him to come back the way that he left. And he would have immediately been faced with that. So he probably took the long way around to avoid that to some extent. But even more so, he was just in a region, very very pagan, worldly region, trying to teach the disciples a lesson about clean and unclean, about how the Gentiles would soon be invited into the flock. And I think what he said is, you know what, we're going to circle around, we're going to avoid all that, we're going to go straight down to another Gentile region, which is that area of the Decapolis. We don't know for sure. That makes sense to me in my study. But 
here's what happens. They arrive roughly in the same area uh, where the garrisons were, the same area where he drove the, the demons out of the man into the pigs from one Gentile area to another. Now, if you remember back in Mark 5, when Jesus delivers the man, what does he tell him? He's telling everybody else, keep it quiet. When they witness the miraculous, he says, no, no, don't go tell everybody. But what does he tell that particular man, the first Gentile, if you will, that he interacted with and delivered? He tells him this, excuse me, Mark 5, 19, 20. And he did not let him, the man wanted to come with him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Remember that? So apparently this man did just as Jesus asked because when he arrives there this time, the reception is much different. Remember last time they said, okay, that's great and all that you delivered him, but can you please leave? They had lost their pigs and they didn't want any more commotion. So they asked him to go. This time, Mark 7.32, as soon as he arrives, and they brought to him one who was deaf and had difficulty speaking, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So as soon as he arrives in town, they're, instead of saying, oh, this guy again, they said, go get, go get this guy, who, whatever his name was, we don't know. He's deaf and he can't speak, and they bring him to Jesus. Now what happens next is the subject of a lot of confusion and study. I'm going to try and make sense of it for you. Okay, Mark 7, 33, 34. And Jesus took him aside. Again, the deaf Deaf man, and he can't speak. Deaf and dumb. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers in his ears. Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. So spits, touches the saliva, and touches the man's tongue with his saliva. Gross, right? And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephaphtha. That is, be opened. There's that Mark translating the Aramaic word, ephaphtha, so that people don't go, oh, is that some sort of incantation? Will you just say that every time? It's cool to note that even Jesus prays before acting. He knows what he's going to do, but he's there and he stops and he takes time to look up to heaven and pray before he does it. Here's another one of those 17th century paintings that's kind of a depiction of what's happening here. Now, we don't know where it says he went off by himself. We don't know for sure if it was just Jesus and the man or if it was just away from the crowd and his disciples were allowed to watch. That's what, that's what I picture. The disciples are allowed to watch while Jesus heals this man. Now, why do you think Jesus did it like this? A lot of unusual elements here, right? He took the man aside, did it privately, not in front of the crowds, he put his fingers in the man's ears. He touches the man's tongue. And only then does he speak the words, be opened in, in Aramaic. Why do you think he did it like that? It's the only time he's done so far anything kind of odd like that other than just speak it, right? I think here's, here's a practical reason. Very practical reason, I think. why You can look at that and go, okay, that's just weird. And most, most of us, me included, would tend to just like skip over that because it seems kind of weird. There's a very practical reason why he did it. Think about it. The man could not speak. The man could not hear. And so for Jesus to say to him, son, your faith is, I am the Lord your God and I will make you whole. Anything that Jesus would say, the guy wouldn't hear. He wouldn't know. And so Jesus is using kind of a primitive sign language to go, I'm healing your ears. And I'm giving you the very essence of me on your tongue, which will heal your speech. He's telling the man essentially in sign language, this is what I'm going to do. Otherwise, the man would have no idea. The man wouldn't know that Jesus was doing it, didn't know that he didn't say some kind of a spell or wasn't just another magician. He was creating anticipation about the blessing that was just about to happen. So when it happened, the man had no doubt this is done through Jesus. He also did it privately when he went aside. Here's why he did it privately. This is 
Jesus does this time and time again. Had Jesus in the middle of the crowd, all these pagan, I say they're pagans, but Gentiles, pagans, gathered around watching this happen, if Jesus healed the man by going ink and like that, how many of them would have run home and used that very same formula on everyone that they met? Here's how it's done. I saw Jesus do it. People, human nature then was the same as it is now. You see it happen that way and you go, write this down. That's how he does it. And they would have done it again and again. So by taking this man in private, he's able to heal the man, show him mercy, show him the power of God flowing through him without risking that the whole crowd's going to see it. Now that man went out, granted, and showed that he had been healed. So ultimately, we don't know for sure why Jesus did it like that, but we do know the result. Mark 7.35, And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. Imagine he would have gone outside and just started talking and being able to hear, and what, a, what an incredible sight that would have been for the people witnessing. But the time was still not right for Jesus to have a general ministry among the Gentiles. He was teaching his disciples something. Mark 7, 36, 37 says, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone. What happens as soon as you do that? But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, here's the understatement of the century, he has done all things well. He makes even those who are deaf hear and those who are unable to talk speak. I love that. This whole story, this These two stories put together are such a picture of the redemption of fallen Israel and then how the Gentiles were going to then be redeemed through the redemption of Israel. It was an orderly process. It was meant to be like that. Now, if you were one of the disciples, this day, this interaction here would have totally reminded you of Scripture. See, they knew whether you were a scholar or a rabbi or not, if you were a Jew, you knew your Scripture. And so this would have reminded them of Isaiah. Isaiah 35, again, a prophet 600 years before this. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of those who are blind will be opened, and the ears of those who are deaf will be unstopped. Then those who limp will leap like a deer, and the tongue of those who cannot speak will shout for joy. For waters will burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's awesome. And what a picture of what just happened there. The problem is the disciples were missing the depth of what was happening right in front of their eyes. And they were in danger of adopting the very same attitude that we always give the Pharisees a hard time for. Being arrogant, being self-righteous, and believing that somehow you're better and more deserving of God's blessing than everyone else. The disciples were starting to fall into this pattern, and Jesus wasn't going to have it. It's this cultural attitude of, of the Jews being chosen and set apart and special. It's in Scripture. They didn't just make it up. It says that. <laughs> but that attitude had started to permeate everything that they do. When it said it's what flows out of your heart that defiles a person, their hearts were full of skepticism. And even though they might say the right things, they still had this ingrained cultural thing about being better somehow than the Gentiles. We see that all the time. Even later on in Galatians, when Paul writes to the Galatians, Galatians 2, Paul is chastising Peter for distancing himself from the Gentiles. Remember that? Read Galatians 2 if you want to see more on it. But even after he chastises Peter, I love this, he chastises Peter for doing that, and then just a few verses later in verse 15, Paul says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Even Paul says that. He's just giving Peter a hard time for having that attitude. And then it's so ingrained in him, he can't help himself. And he says it too. Thankfully, there is a 100% surefire, absolute cure for attitudes like that. Remember, it's that which comes out of your mouth. It starts in your heart, and it comes out of your mouth, and that defiles you. Defiling makes you unsuitable for what God had 
planned for you. You allow yourself to have words like that come out of your mouth and you are no longer good for ministering the gospel or sharing the word of who Jesus is. But there is a cure and we can take that cure as many times as we need. It's 100% effective if we grasp it. Here's the cure. You ready? Understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone needs a Savior. Listen to this. Write this down if you're going to write anything down. You are not offered salvation because of your righteousness. You are offered salvation because of your sin. And the more you sin, the more you need it. The bigger sinner you are, the more you need it. Jesus said this in Mark 2.17, remember this? It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So how does this apply to our everyday? If you're one of those people, and I have been from time to time, I admit, where you start thinking that you're better than those who don't know Jesus. You start thinking that maybe there's people who aren't worthy of the love and grace of Jesus. I told a story last, and I won't go into the whole story, but I've had people tell me flat out, I will not pray for Joe Biden. I will not pray for Nancy Pelosi. I will not pray for, for Vladimir Putin because they all deserve to go to hell. They all deserve what they get. Church, that is not what Jesus teaches. If you ever called, if you have ever called someone else stupid, worthless, unworthy, if you've ever called someone else that, you need to repent. You need to repent of that attitude right now because that's not... Jesus didn't come for a whole bunch of people sitting in a church talking about how holy we are. Jesus came for those who need him the most. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we're going to close in prayer right now, and now's the time to repent. If you've ever allowed those thoughts to come into your heart, and worse yet, come out of your mouth or through your fingertips onto a keyboard, if you've ever allowed that to happen, you need to repent of those thoughts because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. That's why Jesus is here. God gave his one and only Son to die for us, to reconcile us to him because we all need it. There's not one who doesn't need it. We all need it. So let's pray together. And just ask God to wash our hearts of those things that don't belong there. Father God, Lord, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for me. You sent your son to die for me, but you also sent your son to give his life for those who would never accept him. Those who would outright reject him. Salvation is offered to everyone. So Lord, I repent of any of those times where I have thought of myself better than anyone else just because I have made the decision. Lord, I repent of ever thinking that I am better than anyone because without you, I am nothing. Everything that I have comes from you. Every blessing I have, the breath in my lungs, the blood in my veins, it all comes from you. And Lord, I thank you. And I repent of all those times that I have not been a good ambassador of who you are. I have not shown the love of who you are through grace and mercy to a world who desperately needs it. Lord, I have fallen so short of who you made me to be, of who you called me to be, of who you say I am. Lord, help me to set aside those things that defile me those things in my heart that come out at the wrong moments and do damage to the kingdom of God. Help me to see those and help me to wash my heart clean of those. Father, we love you and we praise you this day and every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. We're going to take communion together right now. We take communion every time we gather together. We take communion. So if you are new to our church or you haven't been here in a while, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are invited to take communion with us. The way we do it here, if you're out there online, you can grab the elements yourself and do it at home. Here we have at the cross stations, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers. And you just dip the bread or the cracker in the juice and take it. You can serve yourself or your family. Up here up front, Gabe and I will be serving. We'd love to serve you. We have wine. Same thing, the bread and the crackers, and you just dip it and take it that way. When we take communion together, though, it's not just because it says so. That's why we do it. We are doing it because the very mission, the charge that Jesus Christ gave us to go and make disciples and the salvation that he offered us through calling him our Lord and Savior, when we take communion, we are reaffirming that decision every single time. Every time we do it, we say the broken body, the blood of Jesus, yes, I accept it. And with that, I accept the responsibility of being an ambassador of Christ to the world. It's not something we should take lightly. So if you're in a place where you just need to pray and repent and get your heart right before you take communion, take the time that you need and do that. We have a prayer team at the back. We have people look for people with a lanyard. If you need prayer or you just need to talk to somebody who can agree with you that yes, we all need a savior. They are back there. Please take the time. If you're out there online, you can put it in the chat boards and we will pray for you. But let's take this time just to respond how the Lord leads. If it's just to stand in worship with abandon, do that. Communion, do that. Prayer, do that. If you want to fall to your knees, do that. Whatever the Lord leads. But let's worship him together because he is good. Amen. Thank you, guys.